Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Good morning. My name is Ed Nall, and I am the acting senior pastor here at Leesburg Community Church. We are continuing in our study of Mark's Gospel this morning. Last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This week, we're going to look at two stories in Mark's Gospel. First, we'll see Jesus strongly rebuking His own disciples because they are keeping little children from coming to Him for a blessing. And then secondly, we will hear the story of a man who comes to Jesus with wealth and a good question. He is typically referred to as the rich young ruler. All three of these accounts in Mark's Gospel have to do with discipleship. That is, how will we follow Christ in our marriages, with our children, with our finances? As we navigate our way through the coronavirus pandemic, The pressures in all of these areas are ramped up. How will we respond? What does God have to say to us during this trying time? Our sermon is titled, What Must I Do? We will see in the Scriptures this morning one big idea and then three questions and their answers. The big idea is this. Salvation from sin is a free gift from God, totally devoid of human merit. I'll say that again. Salvation from sin is a free gift of God's grace, totally devoid of human merit. That's the big idea. And then there are three questions, and they are, first, what do we do for God in order to inherit eternal life? Secondly, what must we leave behind to gain eternal life? And thirdly, what does God promise to those who will follow So let's read our text, verses 13 through 31 of Mark chapter 10. It's a story, and it's packed full of wisdom that relates directly to those of us who live in Northern Virginia, but really to anyone who lives in the United States because we are, by any measure, a wealthy nation. Let's start in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept since my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, 
Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, work this Word into our hearts this morning. Help us to understand that salvation is a free gift from you and that we can do nothing to merit it. Help us, Lord, to approach you as little children, as we will learn in this passage. Bless the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word so that your name may be honored and glorified this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. At first glance, on a quick read-through, you might wonder what these two passages, one about little children coming to Jesus and the other about a rich young man, have to do with each other. But they are closely related as they, they are both about what it takes to see the kingdom of heaven, to inherit eternal life. These two passages are back-to-back in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That means that the correlation between them must be important. So here's what we're going to see. Jesus receives the humble, but he rejects the proud. Jesus receives the humble, that is the little children, and he rejects the proud, the rich young ruler. In verse 13, we'll start there, chapter 10. We see people bringing their children to Jesus for a blessing that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. The disciples were saying, in essence, don't bother Jesus. He's got more important things to do than to pronounce a blessing on some children. They were sinfully reflecting the attitude of Jewish society, which placed little value on children. Sons were valued because they could carry on the family name and they could contribute to the workforce. But children in general were mostly ignored. But Psalm 127 gives us God's perspective on children a perspective that all God's people should share, including his disciples. 
starting in verse 3 of the 127th Psalm. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But here's an example of people's actual thinking in those days from a papyrus letter that was discovered, dated 1 BC, written by a man named Hilarion to his wife, Alice. He instructs her, if it is a male child, let it live. If it is a female child, cast it out. He was telling his pregnant wife to commit infanticide if the child was a female. Children were not highly valued in those days. Childhood was thought of as something that had to be endured until children were old enough that they could contribute to the family business. So when Jesus saw the disciples hindering the children from coming to him, he was indignant. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is said to be indignant, at least using this particular word. That word means he was roused to anger. If you know what makes someone angry, then you will know something about what they love. Because when something that you love is threatened, that's when you become angry. And Jesus is angry because the disciples are keeping little children from coming to him for a blessing. He loves these little children. And he has something that he wants to teach us through them. Jesus says in verse 15, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is it about little children that would cause Jesus to say this? The Greek word for little children here is used is very young children. Luke renders it babies. Little children who are below what some people call the age of accountability are not coming to Jesus on their merits. They are not bringing their good works to Jesus so that they can trade them for salvation. And they're not coming to Jesus without sin. Jesus is not accepting them because they are sinless. No. Everyone is descended from sinful parents and therefore is a sinner. But what do little children bring to Jesus? They bring their helplessness. They bring their absolute dependence. Unlike any other creature on the earth, their helplessness extends from their birth for a number of years. Little babies are not self-sufficient. So what do they have to offer God? Their helplessness and their complete dependence on Him. Every child that has ever lived has experienced complete helplessness. It has to be the same with us if we are to enter the kingdom of God. We may not approach God with our good works and think that somehow they merit eternal life. No. We must approach God with empty hands and ask Him for His grace. Only empty hands can be filled. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, puts it beautifully and poetically. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked here before your face, helpless I cry out for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
I was reading John MacArthur's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He puts it this way. The salvation of little children is an apt analogy that demonstrates that salvation is entirely by grace. It is a death blow to any form of legalism since such children can do nothing to merit salvation. The Lord's solemn declaration, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, was a severe rebuke to the legalistic works righteousness system of the Pharisees and their followers, and by extension to all who trust in their good works to save them. Close quote. In verse 16, we are told that he took them in his arms and blessed them. And the word rendered in his arms is a compound verb that means to enfold in someone's arms, like you would hold a little baby. And then we're told he laid his hands on them and blessed them. It was common in those days for people to seek out great men to pronounce a blessing on their children. And whether these people knew it or not, they had come for a blessing to the greatest man who ever lived, from God himself. It was a blessing that none of them deserved and that none of us deserved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 puts it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The impetus and the glory for our salvation belong to Jesus and not to us. Remember the big idea. Keep it in mind as we finish this section and begin to look at Jesus' next encounter. Salvation from sin is a free gift of God's grace. Totally unmerited grace. Let the little children come to me. Now we come to the story of what is typically called the rich young ruler. Mark simply refers to him as a man. Matthew adds that he was young. Luke adds that he was a ruler in the local synagogue or in the community. And as we'll see in all three Gospels, they say that he was rich. We're going to see a tremendous contrast between the children's attitude and this young man's love of money. Between the children who bring nothing to Jesus that would merit their acceptance. And the rich young ruler, who believes that his outward adherence to the law, perhaps combined with a generous financial contribution, would be enough to gain eternal life. But the rich young ruler does ask an important but flawed question. It was an important question then, and it is still an important question now. Verse 17, we're told that the man ran up to Jesus. In those days, it was not considered dignified for a man of prominence to run. He had to gather up the long robes that he was wearing. But this man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him and asks his question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is a good one, but it has a serious flaw. His question assumes that there is something that we can do to merit eternal life. Well, notice Jesus' response to him. This young man seems like a hot prospect. 
If you're doing evangelism and somebody comes up to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're thinking, I have a live one here. But Jesus doesn't give him the four spiritual laws or walk him down the Romans road to salvation. Why? Because Jesus knows what is in his heart. Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? Jesus is going to reorient this man's thinking as to what good is. The rich young ruler is thinking that Jesus is a good teacher, maybe even sent from God. But Jesus brings him up short by questioning his use of the descriptor good toward a man. Jesus replies, only God is good. Here's one of the errors in the rich young ruler's thinking, and we have to make sure that we don't believe the same error. Let's look at Romans 3, where Paul is quoting from Psalms 24 and 53, and he says this, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It seems as though the rich young ruler thinks of Jesus as good, but he also thinks of himself as good, as we will see. But Jesus is in agreement with the Old Testament. No one is good, perfectly good, but God alone. I think that's because of this. Martin Luther said that the default mode of the human heart is self-justification. And that is how the rich young ruler is thinking. How can I be good enough? What can I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus instructs him further. He says, you know the commandments, and being a ruler in the community, he certainly would know the commandments. So Jesus mentions some of the commands, which are basically from the second table of the law, commands relating to horizontal relationships, relationships with other people. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept all these since my youth. Now my reaction would probably be, you haven't kept them since breakfast. But let's remember someone else in Scripture who said much the same thing as the rich young ruler until God changed his heart. That's the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read from his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. How can Paul or the rich young ruler say that they have obeyed these commands and are blameless? Paul, in his pre-Christian days, and the rich young ruler here, were speaking of external obedience, things that someone could observe from their behavior, the things other people see, but not what God sees, which is the attitude of the heart their inward motivations. That's what God sees. But the Apostle Paul, once confronted with his sin by Christ, understands that no amount of good works and obedience can save him. Paul discovers 
what is most valuable, and he gives up everything else so that he can have that thing which is most valuable, which is a relationship with Christ. And so then in Galatians 3-7, through this is what Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Some translations say dung. In order that I may gain Christ. We're about to find out if the rich young ruler feels the same way about his righteousness and his possessions. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him, and then he said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. While this young man may have kept these six commandments outwardly, he had failed to keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. His response to Jesus shows us that he has something that takes priority over God. That's his wealth. That does not mean that every Christian should sell all they have and live in poverty. No. There are wealthy people who are not controlled by their wealth. Some of them are in this church. They use their wealth to bless others for the glory of Christ. But Jesus knows that this young man's heart, he knows what's in his heart. And he goes to the issue that he knows is keeping him from following after Christ wholeheartedly. And that is his riches. So here's a question for us. Is there anything keeping you from following Jesus? Is there anything that you love more than you love God? For some, it might be money. For others, it's something else. John Broadus writes in his commentary on Mark, quote, The test of this is different for different people. Some people find it harder to renounce hopes of worldly honor and fame for Christ's sake than to renounce wealth. And for others, the hard trial is to abandon certain gratifications of the various appetites or of taste. Abraham left his native country at God's command but became rich and famous. Moses gave up the distinction and refined pleasures of court life in Egypt and tried patiently to rule a debased and intractable people. Elisha left his property at the call of God through Elijah. Paul abandoned his ambitious hope of being a great rabbi. All should be willing even to die for Christ, though not many are actually required to do so. Close quote. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful. And verse 22 tells us why. He had great possessions. When he came to Jesus, he wanted to know what he could do in order to have eternal life. But his response tells us that his question was not authentic. His real question was, how can I keep everything that I have and inherit eternal life? 
the rich young ruler doesn't realize that he must give away what he owns in order to gain something of far, far greater value. That's the exchange God wants us to make. It's like this. If I have $500 in my hand and you have $5 in your hand and I offered to trade you, would you take the deal? Of course you would. It's a hundredfold increase. But perhaps we should not think too harshly of the rich young ruler. We all need to consider and ask God to reveal to us if there is anything that we love and cherish more than we love Him. During this pandemic, have you been more generous to the Lord and to His people? Or have you begun to hoard your resources because you don't know what's going to happen? Have you given of yourself in order to bless others, meet the needs of others? Times like these provide opportunities for us to examine what is actually in our hearts. Times like these provide new opportunities to be generous and for God to be seen as the source of our joy and the source of all of our giving. In verse 23, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. The rich young ruler has departed. He's going to teach the disciples the lessons that can be learned from their interaction with the rich young ruler. And as we will see, they are amazed, and then they are doubly amazed at Jesus' teaching because it runs so counter to their culture and to their expectations. So Jesus says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. The disciples are baffled because wealth has been thought of in their culture as an indicator of God's blessing. After all, in the Old Testament, we hold up men like Abraham, Job, and Boaz as godly men who were wealthy. But then Jesus doubles down and continues to share with them the difficulty of the rich entering the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to them, now he calls them children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You may have heard that there was a a camel gate in Jerusalem that the camels had to kneel to get into. Therefore, it was difficult. There is no evidence of any such gate during Jesus' time. Jesus is actually saying it is impossible for a rich person or any person to do anything to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's how we can know that that's the meaning of what Jesus is saying. It's in the disciples' question. Who then can be saved? The disciples believed in a a kind of prosperity gospel that was taught by some of the rabbis. The disciples' question now is, if the rich can't be saved, who can? So now, Jesus, you're telling us that being wealthy is wrong? But Jesus is not saying that it's a sin to be wealthy. No. Tim Keller puts it like this. It is not that all individual rich people are bad, nor that all poor people are good. Jesus did not make such blanket assertions. Nor, on the other hand, was the saying, just be careful, uh, don't fall into greed, be generous from time to time. No. 
Jesus was saying that there is something radically wrong with all of us. But money has a particular power to blind us to it. In fact, it has so much power to deceive us of our true spiritual state that we need a gracious, miraculous intervention from God to see it. It is impossible without God, without a miracle, without grace. Close quote. In fact, that's the next thing that Jesus says to the disciples in verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What God has done for us in Christ has made it possible for us to escape the trap and the blindness of wealth. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and listen closely. Sometimes we get familiar with the passage. We don't pay close attention. Listen closely to what Jesus says. Verse 19 of chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus does not say, go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll find no rewards. No. Jesus promises a greater reward, both in this life and for eternity. Let's go back to our narrative. Peter speaks up here in verse 28, as usual, and he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. He's contrasting the disciples with the rich young ruler. He's not willing to leave everything. We are. That's true. They had left their boats, their fishing nets to follow Jesus. But Jesus has something he wants to teach them here, a new kind of math, if you will. You leave something behind, in order to gain something else of far, far greater value. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Now listen closely. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God rewards people who diligently seek Him. According to Hebrews 11.6, you must believe that he is a God who rewards those who seek him if you want to draw near to God. And that reward is everlasting life in the presence of God. But Jesus speaks of more than just the next life. Now, Jesus responds to Peter. Peter said, we left everything. Here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here's where I see this play out. The great missionaries that I know don't own a home. But they have a hundred homes into which they are welcomed warmly. They don't have a lot of money. 
but there are people around the world who will gladly help to supply all their needs. It does not mean that life will be easy. Jesus says it comes with persecutions. But he also says in the end, there is everlasting life. If you have given something away for the sake of Jesus and his gospel, you're not poorer because of it. You're richer. Jim Elliott put it this way, He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. You know, there are two rich young rulers in our text today. I don't think I would have noticed that, but Tim Keller pointed it out. There is one who asked the good but flawed question. He was young, wealthy, and he had some kind of local leadership position. The other rich young ruler in our story is about 31 years old. He owns everything in the world, and he is the king of everyone who's ever been called a king. The rich young ruler in our story today was unwilling to let go of his possessions in order to gain everlasting life. He was unwilling to become like a little child. But the true rich young ruler, Jesus Christ, gave up perfect and delightful fellowship in the Trinity, the ultimate in riches, so that he he could become one of us, and then he could die to pay the penalty for our sin. If you want to inherit eternal life, the question is not, what must I do? The question is, in whom should I put my trust? This Jesus, who was the ultimate rich young ruler, gave up his riches and became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. The firstborn of all creation made himself last, made himself nothing to the point of death on a cross. And so God made him the firstborn who would bring many sons and daughters to God. I promised you at the beginning of the message that I would give you answers to the three questions, and here they are. First question. What do we do for God in order to inherit eternal life? Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in Jesus. Second question, what must we leave behind to gain eternal life? Self-righteousness and anything that we value more than we value God. And third, what does God promise to those who will follow him? One hundredfold blessings in this life and in the next. Which takes us back to the big idea, and that's where we'll close. Salvation from sin is a free gift of God's grace totally devoid of human merit. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept his grace and his mercy, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is true, your magnificent word, which has no errors, which is faithful to teach us the way that we should live, the way that we can come to know you, to tell us what Jesus has done for us in all of his glory. Lord, if there's some who are within the sound of my voice who do not know you, would you move them by your Spirit to place their trust in you, to place their faith in you, and receive forgiveness for their sins and new life. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.